Well, good morning, and good morning, and welcome to Big Valley Grace. And how many met somebody new? You shook hands. Yeah, good, excellent. That's why we do this. And if you're visiting Big Valley for the first time, welcome to our church family. And we hope you feel that you've been included, and we're glad that you're here. And and may the Lord bless you. My wife and I will be right up here in the front. We'd be glad to meet with you right after the service is out. And for those that came today and you're carrying heavy burdens, you never know what a week brings, right? And some, for some, uh, this maybe this week brought some heavy things into your life. And there'll be a group of people right over there to pray with you. And we, ju- we just want to encourage one another and support one another through the various things the Lord will take us through. If you haven't done this yet, get, get the, this little book. Uh, it's called A Spiritual Journal. It's on the book of Ephesians. We started a study in Ephesians, a series in Ephesians, which will extend up to, I think, Mother's Day. Uh, so Pastor Rick gave a great start last week. If you missed it, you can go online and you can pick up that, uh, that service. But, but you be a student of the Word. You, you study. And take this little book. And it, it is the book of Ephesians written in the uh, ESV uh, translation. And there's pages where you can write your notes, write your questions. Um, uh, on mine, I've been doing some writing in it. And, uh, you know, I'm looking for key words. And some of the things that we'll be talking about today is coming from this own personal study. So uh, take it, write in it, but uh, let's study it together and you be ahead of the game. Uh, today we'll be finishing Ephesians chapter 1. We probably should have spent four or five weeks just in Ephesians 1. We won't be able to do that in any in any of it, I and mean, this is a serious, uh, this is a great book. In fact, one of my friends uh, who's a Bible professor said that uh, if, if, if things ever got so bad that they were collecting Bibles and burning them, take the book of Ephesians, rip it out, fold it up, stick it in your shoe, and then hand them your Bible. Because in the book of Ephesians, you'll have everything that you need about who God is, who we are, the hope that we have in Christ, as well as how we ought to live for them. Uh, it is a book of Romans in miniature, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, how you can study it more effectively, but it's a great book, and, uh, but yet we're only going to be spending just a, a few weeks in it, just kind of going with some highlights, but be in a life group, study it yourselves, and there's a lot of great uh, helps on the internet to even help you to study it further. I know when we meet like this, and we have a large community that's online, and we welcome those of you who are watching. We, I don't know if you know, but we have over a thousand people that watch uh, Big Valley Grace all over the United States, in Modesto, as well as um, even around the world that are cluing in right now today. And as we meet, it's not unlikely that there are several different uh, groups of people that are listening here today several possibilities, and maybe you are one of those today that you uh, were brought by a friend, maybe rather reluctantly, you were doing a favor, but you know, in your own life, you, you, you're feeling, you may be even here today, you're feeling um, maybe peculiar, because you know that you are far away from the Lord. You know that how you have been living has distanced you from a relationship with him, and maybe you haven't even really cared about that. Romans talks about in Romans chapter 1 that, 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 that those who have been far away live an ungrateful life, not recognizing that he's the giver of all things. And sometimes lives are controlled by bitterness and unforgiveness. And, and we make up our own way. We're just going to go our own path. And we really don't care uh, what the Lord even thinks about that. And maybe you're in that category today. We're not here to put you down, but just to recognize the reality of it. And yet this book of Ephesians chapter one is is for you, as well as for every one of us that's here. 
And, and I believe, really believe the Holy Spirit has brought you here today to hear of some good news. And I hope that you hear that and your eyes will see it and, and your heart will be drawn toward Jesus Christ who's our living Lord. There, there may be those also who are in a category where they are being drawn. Uh, there's been a, a new awakening. There's something new that is being born within them. And there's a, a new appetite, a new hunger, and you're seeing things differently you've ever seen before. You haven't fully com- made it fully surrendered yet, but, but boy, you know something's stirring, and you, you're beginning to sense the reality of Christ, and we welcome you here today. And again, the book of Ephesians will be for you. And then there are those, and Elisa kind of touched on it, I mean, there isn't been a new birth. You, you sense that there's something brand new that's going on. And, and, you, and, and you, are, you, you are beginning to be fully in. And there's been an awakening in your life. And, and, and you know that Christ is real and that you're, you're secure in him. And yet you haven't been baptized yet. And you see that opportunity and you're wrestling with that issue. And yet, yet you're brand new in Christ. And we welcome you today. But then there are some, and I hope it's not many, but there could very well be a number of us who are just stalled out. You've been baptized, you've been in several Bible studies, but your life in Christ has just been flat. There's been no dynamic work in it. And, and uh, in fact, I spoke to one gentleman this last week. He says, you know what, I'm just kind of a one-on-one kind of guy. It's just Jesus and me. Uh, church really isn't my thing. And maybe you're like that. You reluctantly are here today, and yet you, you just know that maybe your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, your, your, your salvation is secure, but you're really not growing in Christ. There's no hunger. There's no appetite for him. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and, but that's just where you're at. And we do go through times where, uh, in fact, there's places like this in the ocean where the wind doesn't blow. And, and, every, and if you're in a sailboat, you're just stalled out. You're waiting for the wind to blow again. And maybe that's where you are at spiritually today. And, and Paul's going to pray a prayer that I hope will become your prayer when we study it here today. And then I would hope that there's many here today that are really hungry for the Lord. That they would say, like David said in the Psalms, Lord, as a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. And you're not looking for something more like an experience, but you know that Christ is the answer. You know that he is the hope. And, and, and we go through heights and depths of emotions, and that's not what you're looking at. I mean, it's nice to be on top and, and the emotions are flying, but what you really want is him. And to know him, to experience him, and to walk with him. And uh, so there's this appetite to know more. And I hope that there would be many that are like that today, uh, listening online or here today, that you have an appetite for his word, which we're going to study here in just a moment. So we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to give you a little bit of historical background to this book, which will give us some understanding as we go through the study that I think will be helpful to us. But right now, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read for the New International Version, 1984. And you're going to say, what in the world does that mean? Well, if you have the New Living Translation, which Rick often reads out of, you're going to feel a little bit lost today. (laughs) And uh, he he has a modern paraphrase that he uses. Joel uses the New American Standard. Tim uses the ESV. So whatever version you have, it's okay, right? And uh, follow along with me. The, The text will be up on the screen. And as I read, as some of you know, Um, I'll throw in some additional words, not adding to the scripture, but just trying to give it more expansiveness, greater understanding, because some of these words have great depth to them, and I want you to capture the full meaning of it. So in Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 1, I'm going to read 23 verses, which will prepare us for what we'll talk about here today. 
So Ephesians chapter 1, may the Lord bless the reading of his word today. Paul. Paul happens to be a prisoner, which we'll see here in a little bit. But he calls himself an apostle. Apostle means he's an ambassador. He's a sent one. And so you can say Paul, a sent one of Christ Jesus. Paul, an ambassador of Christ Jesus. And you can put your name in there. Lonnie Skiles, a what of Christ Jesus. Jeff Cleek, a what of Christ Jesus. You put your name in there too. But Paul, who's writing, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, Paul says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, Paul says, I pray, pray, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the spiritual realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Rick did, talked about that last week, and he did very well. Now it's going to begin a series where he's going to use a lot of he's and him's and his's, and they're all in the same sentence. You're wondering who in the world is he going to talk about? So track with me as I try to fill in some of those blanks. For he, who's the he? God the Father. God the Father chose us. He elected us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. In God, and in God the Father's sight. In love, God the Father predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his, God the Father's, pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he, God the Father, has freely given us in the one whom he loves, who is Christ Jesus. Verse 7. So it's in Christ that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished and poured out upon us with all wisdom and understanding. And he, God the Father, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ." So it's in Christ we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him, who's God the Father, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his Father's glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Christ with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now here's where our study begins today in verse 15. I think it's always important to understand context. And so Paul says it's for this reason, it's for all the reasons that he just enumerated our position and relationship with Christ and the revelation of the mystery that God has of putting everything together in Christ, Jew and Gentile and all things under him. Paul says for this reason, ever since, now remember he's in a prison, ever since I heard about your faith, he hears two things, I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your unconditional love for all the saints, which would have been impressive. Paul says, I've not stopped giving thanks for you. And the word for you isn't just you individually, though that's a good way to read the word. When you read his epistles, it's good to put your name in. So you can say, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, Lonnie, remembering you, Lonnie, in my prayers. That's a good way of saying it. But in the context of this, it's you all. 
second person plural. And so if you're from the South, like Texas, you're right to say you all. So I have not stopped giving thanks for you all, remembering you all in my prayers. Paul had spent three years with these people. He remembers them and knows them by name. And so Paul says in verse 17, says, I keep asking in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you all the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you all may, what does it say? Know him better. That's an interesting word, which we'll touch on in just a little bit. You might want to circle that in your Bible. It's significant that you know what that word know means. And I pray also, Paul says, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And he's going to say three things. Here's what I pray. That when your eyes would be opened, that you would see these three things. That you, would, that you may know the hope of which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And three, in his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power, and the word power is going to be used again and again throughout the book of Ephesians. That power is like the working of four things. Of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And every title, that's number three, that you can be given, that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And fourthly, and God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege and opportunity today to, to take your word and just to encourage, to share it, Lord, in such a way that folks might be encouraged in whatever condition or state that they might be in, to those who are far away, to those who are hungry for you, and everything in between. Lord, your desire is what Paul has prayed, that you would give us even today a spirit of revelation and wisdom so that we might know you better. That the eyes of our heart, Lord, today would even be enlightened, would be opened up. They would begin to see things we have not seen before. Not that we would be smarter in terms of knowledge, but Lord, that you would be leaking out through us. That the depth of our knowledge of you, Lord, would be metastatic. That it would flow through every vein, every cell of our body. That all might know that we belong to you. That we would fully understand the hope of your calling in our life that we would understand greater to a greater degree the inheritance we have in you, that we might experience your power that would set us free from anger and bitterness, unforgiveness, uh, from the things of the past that shackle us, that we would be men and women who experience your mighty power, setting us free, bringing us out of darkness into light, and turning our days, Lord, of dimness into days of joy. So, Lord, speak to us today. Let your word speak. Holy Spirit, Use this in our lives today for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Uh, inside your, your program is a note sheet. I encourage you to follow along. And for those who are visiting, it's, it's really a tool for you that you would go home and use, that you would look up other passages of Scripture. You would take notes in it and maybe highlight passages that really speak to you today. So let's just talk a little bit. Let me just share a little bit about the background of this book. And when you study, whether it be Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Romans, it's always good to know uh, the audience. Who are the people that he was writing to? What were they like? What was it like to live in the town of Ephesus back in the first century? What is the significance of Ephesus? So let me just give you a quick history lesson, a little bit of background. 
The town of Ephesus is significant. It's really not a town. It's a major city. It's actually the third largest city in Eastern, the Eastern Roman Empire. It would compete with Antioch and Alexandria and some of the other cities that would be on the east side of the Roman Empire. East. Now, if you can imagine where Turkey is at, everything east, if you go to the west side of Turkey and everything east, that's what we're referring to. If you were to look at the entire Roman Empire, which, which the expanse of the empire stretched all the way from Spain to through Iran, uh, up to, I'm sorry, through Iraq up to Iran, uh, as far north as northern Germany and as far south as Egypt and all the other countries that, were, that bordered the Mediterranean. It's a huge, huge area. Out of all the cities, Ephesus is number five. But it was third most importance in terms of influence. This would be likened to us today like Chicago. Uh, Chicago is the third largest city in the United States, and it is the central hub of the central United States. If you know anything about the Midwest, almost all roads lead into Chicago. The Chicago Board of Trade is as, as, as significant as the New York Stock Exchange. Billions of dollars flow in and out of Chicago. It is a major hub of wealth, and so is Ephesus. All things flowed through Ephesus. It was a major trade center. It is a, it, in this day, it was a port city. Today, if you go, it's about seven to nine miles inland. The reason it is inland is because over the centuries, soils would flow into the rivers and out the rivers, it, it's silted, and now it's just a large swamp between the actual coast and where Ephesus is today. During the first century, Shipping was diminishing because they're having a hard time keeping the harbor open. But what was flourishing was that it was a religious center. This town, this community of over 250,000 to 500,000 people had known great wealth. There were magnificent buildings on this place. It was the center of worship for Rome. What was significant is the building that you see there was huge. It was made all out of marble. And if you were coming in by ship, it would be one of the first things that you would see. There were some magnificent buildings, not just this one, though this was, the, was mentioned as the seventh wonder of the ancient world. It was over 450 feet long, about almost 300 feet wide. It would consume our athletic field out here at Big Valley Christian School. So if any of you, when you leave here and you go west on, Pel or, I'm sorry, east on Pellendale and you look at our athletic field, this structure would fit over the entire athletic field. It was that big. 127 columns, 60 feet tall, and in the center of that building was a meteor that had the shape of a human being, a woman, that had multiple breasts on it, and they made figurines to that image. They thought that this thing that fell out of the sky was from Diana or Artemis herself and became an object of worship. They probably built the building around the thing, because my guess is the meteor was too big for them to haul and put it someplace else. The structure that you see was the third one. The others had been destroyed by war, and each one got bigger and bigger and bigger. But it was the hub of worship for all of Rome. There are images of Artemis as far north as the Scandinavian countries historically. So you're having people who are coming during the month of May, which is largely where Acts chapter 19 takes place, where they had the big riot, was in, during the season of May. They would have a month-long festivities, and this city would swell to over a million people, of people from all nations coming and worshiping this goddess of fertility. 
It was quite a party. Quite a party. Connected with this structure was a major religious industry selling things to facilitate worship. Several years ago, I had an opportunity to go to Hong Kong. And uh, we had developed some relationships with some folks who uh, lived there. And one of the places we went was a place where they would often go. They, they would consider themselves to be Buddhists, but the only time they really practiced it was on the New Year's. And they would go and they would present offerings and they would do what they called shake the bamboo. So as we approached this large religious center where they had this very, very large statue of an overweight Chinese guy, uh, and, uh, and I say that in, in, in a nice way uh, because... Um, the image represented a man who had once lived, who was known for his integrity, his outstanding character. And when he died, they all thought, surely this guy, would, because they believe in reincarnation, made, made it up to the next rung. And serves as a mediator between the king of heaven, who's above all, and us that are down here. And so they would pray to this mediator, who was this righteous judge, and by golly prayers would be answered. And the more prayers are answered, the more money would flow, and the larger the statues would get, and the larger the community would get. And so as we walked down this boulevard on both sides were all of these booths, little huts, um, lined with artisans on the inside that would sell things to facilitate worship. You could buy things to put on your wrist. You could buy offerings that you could present to the statue. And one of the things that you could purchase was this tube full of what I would call pickup sticks. So that's kind of what it looked like. They looked like bottle rockets, actually. It was a long bamboo stem, and around it, there would have been this little piece of paper wrapped around it. And as they would go to worship, and as they would go to pray and present their offerings, they would shake what they call shake the bamboo, at least this is what it explained to me. And as they would shake it, one of the straws would come out and fall to the ground, they had to purchase this thing from one of the booths that were there. And then they would take it back and pay another money to somebody who would read it. And they would unroll, kind of like a fortune cookie, they'd kind of unroll it. It'd be all in Chinese. But then they would say, this is what your fortune has. The gods have brought this out. This is your fortune. And this is real stuff. This, this is the real deal. And the person who we were connected to um, a woman, read it, and predicted her death that year. And how we got connected is that shortly after that Chinese New Year, uh, she and her family came to Yosemite for a visit. And during the course of her visit, she was riding a bicycle, lost control of it, fell, hit her head on a rock, and she was airlifted in Memorial Hospital where she laid in a coma for a week and then died. And we received a call from somebody at Memorial Hospital who's connected to our church and said, is there anybody here that could come and minister to this family? And my mother, who was one of the assistants here, um, answered the phone. And she and other ladies went and embraced this family and ministered to them. And uh, her sister later became very much a part of our life. And it was through her that I got to go to Hong Kong. This stuff that was happening here was serious stuff. The amulets that they would buy, they did that because they very much knew the effect of evil spirits. 
They, the, and when you look at Acts chapter 19, they had these scrolls. So think of Harry Potter and his magical book. These are real things, incantations, that people would go and have read over them to heal them for deliverance, for help, from all sorts of things, for infertility, whatever those issues were, this was the center. This is where you went. And all of Asia, all of the Roman Empire, at some point would come to this place and would find help. Paul spent three years in this place and became the epicenter for the evangelistic movement that swept all throughout Asia. Colossae is not too far from Ephesus. It was affected. And when you read Acts chapter 19, what Paul is accused of, Demetrius is saying, Paul's message is having an economic impact upon us. Thousands of people are turning away from the worship of Artemis, which we all know is the real deal, and serving another God, and sales have fallen. I say that because oftentimes when we look at the book of Ephesus, we might think that this is a little house group of 20 people. This is a big deal. So much, I mean, a little house group of 20-some people meeting does not affect sales, right? (laughs) Who, Who cares what 20 people do? This is thousands and thousands and thousands of people, not just in Ephesus, but all throughout Asia. And Paul is ministering when millions of people are coming to worship and they're hearing the gospel message and they're believing it because what you'll see here, as we just read, they were looking for a powerful God. (laughs) They're looking for someone who is the name above all names. They were looking for somebody who would be their provider and their protector and they were seeing that Artemis was not it. And they were turning from these kind of things and following a living God. Now, let me just say this as a tangent. This isn't in your notes. This is a freebie. <clears throat> we look at these, and, and you can go on the, on the internet, and you can go to Google, and you can look up Artemis, and you can see what she looked like, and you can see the marble statues, the marble figurines. Some of them are pretty grotesque. And we can look at them and say, how stupid, how foolish it is that they're worshiping a meteor from heaven. None of us would do that, Right? None of us would take a little statue and bury it in the front yard and hope that your house would sell, right? None of us would put a little statue on our car, hopefully, or wear something around our neck that we would have good luck, right? None of us would ever really do any of that, right? (laughs) An idol, though, is so much more than that. Flip over to just a few pages to, to Colossians 3 as Paul defines what idolatry really is. It is... The image of Artemis is small compared to what Paul is going to say in Colossians chapter 3. Look at verses 5. And Paul says to this church of Colossae, he wrote this letter at the same time he wrote Ephesus. And he says to the folks, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Put to death sexual immorality. Put to death impurity. Put to death lust. Put to death evil desires. Put to death greed. Which is what? idolatry. You want to know what real idolatry is today? We may not be having little images that we pray to or that we hang around our neck. This is real idolatry. Idolatry is anything that robs our affection and our attention and distracts us from the true worship and joy in Christ. Anything that competes with that, anything that puts Jesus second place, anything that puts him on the lower rung is idolatrous. Anything, any person, any activity, no matter how good it might be. 
There's nothing wrong with a desire to find happiness, fulfillment, and success. But all of those things can become your idol where you want it so badly you'll do anything to get it. And while you may not have an image, you're serving another God. You're honoring someone else that is far lesser than the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You're not willing to trust him to lay yourself and surrender to him. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But I just want us to say right out of the gate, as we talk about what took place in Ephesus, and we look at them and say, oh, those foolish people, don't be too quick. Because there's things in our own lives that we need to look at and say, why do my eyes not see the things that I ought to be seeing? Why is my heart losing its sensitivity, which is what we're going to get into in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 3? Or we lose the sensitivity because we're still engaged with things. We're still sitting on the fence. Or we have one foot in Christ and another foot in the world. Or we, and he says, you're lukewarm. I'd have you not be that. So be real careful as you look at this and recognize how real this is into our lives even today. So the big picture of this is that this letter was written from prison. And, and Ephesians 3 verse 1 and 4 verse 1, Paul identifies himself as a prisoner. Shortly after he leaves Ephesus, and he was there for three years, he tells the folks, I'm not going to see you again, because the Lord tells me that what awaits for me is prison. Paul had great aspirations. He wanted to, he wanted to go throughout all the Mediterranean. He was a multilingual person. He says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I speak in, uh, 2 Corinthians 14, says I speak in tongues more than all of you. What he's referencing is I can speak French, I can speak German, I can speak Italian, I can speak, he, he, he was able to move in any culture and he could speak the language and communicate the gospel. God gave him that wonderful ability of knowing multiple languages and sharing the gospel to multiple different groups of, of people. But God slowed him down. I'm glad he slowed him down. We wouldn't have this letter if he didn't slow him down. He put him in prison unjustly, and he was waiting trial to go to Rome. You can read about it in Philippians chapter 1, where Paul tells the people, hey, don't let this discourage you. I may be chained to a soldier, but guess what? Let me tell you the number of soldiers who've prayed to receive Christ. And it's working its way all the way up into Nero's household. God's able to work through all things for good to those who love, and he assures them for me to live as Christ. God's using me here in this place. And he's using you in your doctor's appointments. He's using you in your places of work, in the places of your community. He's doing the same thing with Paul. But Paul's in prison. He's writing, these, he's writing this letter along with the letter of Philippians and the letter of Colossians. He's writing these are called prison epistles. When you look at the book of Ephesians, it's divided into two parts. Chapters 1 through chapter 3 is theology. It's Romans in miniature. Chapters 4, and it deals with the exaltation of Christ. Chapters 4 and chapter 6 is our response to the, our understanding of who Christ is. If Once you know who Jesus is, particularly as we look at this passage from 15 to 23, where he has been seated on high at the right hand of the Father and a title has been given to him that's never going to be taken away and all things are under his feet. What are you going to do with that? So you know that. Does it work its way to here? Does it work its way out? That's what four through six is all about, is how do we live with what we know, who Jesus is, who he is going to be coming again, and who we're going to see. A.W. Tozer, who I enjoy reading, wrote the book called Knowledge of the Holy, and this is what he said. He said that what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He went on to say that we tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. 
This is true of the individual Christian, but the church as well. It's true. How you think about God when you think about him is going to define your life. If you have a view that God is small, it's going to affect your life. Why would you pray to a God that's small? Why would you even think about him throughout the day if, he is, if your image of him is that he's far away and not near? That he doesn't really care about you? That your problems are too big for him? That you're just going to have to make it on your own? It's just you. Why would you serve him? Why would you seek him? Why would you sing songs to him? But if your view of God is, it's a big view. You recognize the truth that he is the creator of all things. And his eye who's on the sparrow, he, his eye is on me. He knows every cell in my body. He knows the day that I was born. He was the one who actually knit me together. He's the one who gave me the blue eyes I have and the mom and dad that I have and the story that I have. And he's doing that in each of our lives. He has a destiny and a plan for me. And when that's done, he has a place he's prepared for me where I will be with him. And he is near. And while he may feel far away, it's me, not him. He is right here, and he's working in ways that I cannot see. He's the way maker, right? And even when things seem dark, he's here. He's leading me through, even through the valley of the shadow of death. He's my shepherd. Folks, that changes your life. You live differently. When you recognize the truth and the reality that he's coming again, you live differently when you know you're going to see him face to face. You know you live differently when you're eager to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So your view of God and how you think of him truly shapes your life, but not just you. It's our church too. There are churches all across this place that have a small view of God. I shared last night, I was in a church in Illinois with some friends. I was attending their church and I heard a sermon on nuclear proliferation. They didn't even open up the Bible. They sang Amazing Grace in fact, they sang a bunch of traditional hymns. And then the pastor got up and he read the authorized text that day from his denomination, a nuclear proliferation. And Jesus wasn't mentioned in the whole bunch of it. How big is their God? About that big. And you wonder why the church is dead. And the day that we lose sight of who Jesus is, the day we stop talking about him, I don't care how many candies and cookies we pass out. We're a dead church. And the Lord wants us to be alive in him. And it's all connected to who we see of him together. See him as Christ, the living Lord. So Paul's passion, look at verse 17. Paul's passion. He says, when I pray, here's what I pray. I pray that the Father will give you a spirit of wisdom. That's insight and revelation. Why? Why? See it right there in 17? So that you might know him better. And that word know, and, and, and this, you don't have to be a Greek scholar. You don't have to be a seminary student. You can find this stuff online. That's what I do. Paul uses multiple different words that all are translated K-N-O-W, know. This one is called epigonosco. What that means is that that my knowledge of Christ is fully metabolized in me. That means 
that it has gone from my head, it has gone to my heart, and it leaks out. It is in every cell of my body. And Paul is praying, I am praying, that our God, our Father, our glorious Father, would give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and insight so that you might know Christ so well that he leaks out of you. That is his passion. He is later going to pray in Ephesians chapter three. He is going to pray. I pray that you would have the power to grasp how wide and how long, how high and how deep is the love of God as for you and for others. It changes your life. That is Paul's passion. That is why he's writing this letter that these folks who have come out of great darkness would know Christ so well that it leaks out of them. And leaking out of them, it was so much so that in Acts chapter 19, Demetrius is saying, Paul has turned this city upside down and we are losing our income, we are losing our business and that temple that I showed you is gonna fall in disarray. And if you went to Ephesus today, you'll hardly will see a column of that building because it was all torn apart and distributed and some of it is even erected in a church nearby. Exactly what Demetrius was concerned about because the power of Christ brought incredible change. Don't miss Paul's passion. You pray that prayer. You pray that the Lord would give you a spirit of wisdom, of supernatural insight and revelation so that you might know Christ, not that you know him as a Sunday school God and you know all the stories, but that knowledge is in such a way that it leaks out. The people in your home can tell the difference. Daddy's different, mommy's different. The people at work can tell the difference. Something's changing you, Bill, what's going on? Because Christ is leaking out. So Paul's prayer, Paul's prayer has two things here. He's praying that they would receive the spirit of insight and wisdom and revelation so that they might know him better. But he's also praying, look at verse 18. He's also praying I pray also, he says, so there's two things. Here's the second thing. I also pray, and pray this too, that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. What he's talking about is this, not the organ. He's talking about the inner you. That inner you that drives your personality, the inner you that drives your desires, your longings, your, your wants, that your fears affect, the things that hinder you. Oh, Lord, would you help me to see some of you have had the experience where you have had cataracts, and if you haven't had them yet, they're coming, right? <laughs> and what happens in a cataract, the lens of your eye begins to be foggy, and you can't see as clearly as it once used to see. And Paul is saying, I, I don't want you to have spiritual cataracts. I want you to be able to see clearly. And if you could just see clearly these three things, it will change your life. I'm praying that you will see clearly the hope of your calling that you have in Christ. Folks, this will change your life if you can truly understand what that means. And the word hope isn't referring to, like we might say, today after day, I hope I get to go to Disneyland with my wife, though we probably won't. <laughs> I, I, hope, I hope I get a bonus this week, but I might not. That's not the kind of hope he's talking about, the hope that might happen, but likely it won't, or maybe it won't. This hope is based upon the confidence of who God is and what he has said and that he is a God who keeps all of his promises. 
I am banking on what God has said. I am staking my life upon what he has said. I am looking forward to the revelation of what he has said. And so the hope of my calling, what is it? Peter references this in 1 Peter chapter 2. You might want to write that down. You look at it later. But my hope and my confidence, his word says, and we've seen this in Ephesians 1, is that you and I have been chosen by God even before the foundations of the world. My hope and my confidence is that I belong to him, that I'm safely in his hands. I have, been, I have received mercy and forgiveness. I have been made holy and blameless in his eyes. In fact, I, he's been giving me a purpose to declare his good work in our lives and to point other people to him. Uh, my hope and my confidence is that he's the shepherd of my life and he'll be with, him, with me through every part of this journey. And he's the one who leads me to green waters. He's the one whose staff comforts me when I go through the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, my hope and my confidence is that he promises he'll renew my mind and he's doing that and he's promised that my labor will not be in vain and he's promised that I will live with him and there's so much more and Paul says I'm praying that your eyes would see that clearly that you would that 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 the understanding of your calling would just be deep-seated into your life that you would know it fully that he, each of us have a purpose and a plan and that he loves us and we're chosen and, he, and he's looking forward to us and, he, and he's having a mansion prepared for us. And we're going to see him again and he's going to reward us. He says, don't lose sight of that. And then secondly, he prays. He prays, he says, I pray also in verse 18, he says, I pray that, that, you would, that you would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Do you know that you and I are Christ's inheritance. He bought us. John says, the father has given us to his son. And the son holds us in his hands and the father puts his hands right up on top of it. And Jesus says, and no one is ever gonna escape that grip. We are securely in him. We are gonna be his bride. We don't look real pretty today, though we look kind of nice. But, you know, if we could really see all the dirt, we know that we got a long way yet to go. But there's going to be a day we're going to be washed clean and we're going to be his bride and we are lovely. And Jesus can't wait for that union. In fact, we'll see in just a little bit where he's the head and we're the body and everything else is under his feet. We're going to, we're going to be seated with him. We're going to be his treasure. And, his, and, and while we are his inheritance, he's ours. Think about that. We belong to him and he belongs to us. That's, that's one of the joys. He says, I, I'm praying that you would know that fully and understand that fully. Here's where it gets interesting. It says we will be seated with him. We won't sit on the right hand of the father. That's his place. But we will be seated with him above the angels. We'll be given the task to judge angels. Go figure. And I say that because in various memorial services that I've been in, and, and as I've been with various family members, it's often said innocently, he's an angel now. He's a star in the sky now, twinkling down. Folks, you realize how low that is? 
His word says we will be above the angels and the angels will marvel at us and we will judge the angels and the angels will look at us and say, how'd you get there? <laughs> and they will marvel and because of that, we will be a trophy of God's grace for all of eternity. That is our inheritance that we have in Christ. So when, when a loved one passes away, don't say he's an angel. Don't belittle him. If they knew Christ, he is a saint sitting with Christ in his presence. And the angels marvel that he's there or she is there. Isn't that cool? And Paul says, and continue to pray. Not only do I pray that you would understand the hope of his calling. Not only you understand the glorious of riches of his, of, uh, his riches, the glorious riches of his inheritance. But I also pray that you might experience the mighty power which was exerted in four ways. And this word power is repeated over and over again throughout the book of, of Ephesians about nine different times, all meaning the same thing. The power that he's talking about is the dynamic power of the supernatural, the power that gives life, the power that breaks chains, the power that sets people free. That mighty power is exhilarated in four things when you look at verse 19. His incomparably, incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of the mighty strength. Verse 20, which he exerted in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Folks, there's no one like Jesus. He was raised from the dead. He's alive today. Paul would say later in 2 Corinthians that over 500 people today, when he wrote that letter, you can go to 500 people and Luke did and said, tell me about, Jesus. Tell me about Jesus. And they say, I was with him for the, over the 40 days after the resurrection. I ate with him. I saw him. I talked to him. I touched him. I saw his scars. He was with us. It wasn't an apparition. It wasn't a hallucination. I saw him reach in, grab some fish, eat it, and the fish was gone and it didn't drop to the floor when he stuck it in his mouth. He was not Casper the friendly ghost. He was real. We could feel him. We could touch him. And Paul says over 500 people today or alive today who could see him and who could tell you and, ver and give veracity to that. And Luke was one of those who traveled to Israel and had personal interviews when he wrote the book of Luke. And not only is he raised from the dead and alive, but he's coming again and we will see him face to face. And that's what Acts 111 is all about. There's no one like Jesus. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. That's what verse 20 says. He has full authority of the Father. He sits at his right hand. That is a unique place. And it's the Father who has sat him there. And not only has he sat him there, he's given him a title that's above every title. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Now you folks, the people who first heard this years earlier had been worshiping Artemis. They were hungry to be connected to somebody who would have the power over demons, who would have the power over illnesses, who would have the power over other things that afflict them. They would buy stuff and put it on their arms. They would read these incantations. And Paul says, Jesus, not only is seated at the right hand of the Father, but he is above every single name. He is above every single power. His title is above any title that could ever be given and if any of you have ever read Greek mythology, that is huge. When you read the stories of Zeus and, 
and Hermes and, and Venus and Apollos and just the pantheon of gods. It just makes you sick because they were, they were little gods who sought to be served rather than to serve. And Jesus came from his high position to serve rather than be served and to be a ransom for many. No one ever knew of a God like that. And it says his title is above any other title, and this title will never go away. When you know Greek mythology, the titles came and went. They were constantly fighting for position, but Jesus' title will never go away. He will always be the King of Kings. He will always be the Lord of Lords. He will always be the great I Am. He will never, ever fade away. He is sealed in all of eternity. He will always be, and we will always be with him. Nevermore will we ever fail. Nevermore will we ever stumble. Nevermore will we ever shed a tear. Nevermore will we ever be tempted again. We will be holy and blameless, a wonderful bride for him forever and ever and ever. And he is superior to all. There is no one like him. <laughs> Artemis doesn't even hold a candle to him. And when the people heard that through the power of the Holy Spirit, people were set free. Read Acts chapter 19. It was amazing what took place. It's no wonder it has such ramifications and lives are being forever changed. And so I ask myself, what hinders our ability to see? What clouds our vision? What gives us the cataracts? I'm going to suggest three things. We're going to go through them quickly. Disbelief is one. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is God and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Two things. We must believe that he is all that he says he is. That he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the great I Am, who, with his outstretched arms and spoken word, who made the heavens and the earth. Nothing's too difficult for him. That's where it begins. But it doesn't stop there. It also comes down to the, this is the brass tacks. This is where it, it, the rubber meets the road. Do you really believe that God will reward you if you follow him? Do you really believe that the reward that he has for you when you deny yourself and you pick up the cross and follow him is greater than the rewards you can gather here on earth? And so we have choices to obey or disobey. Our obedience is based upon who we really believe God is. And the reason you leave all to follow Christ and the disciples said, God, because they saw a rich young guy come. And when Jesus challenged him to leave all to follow him, the guy shook his head and said, I can't. I've got too much stuff. And the guy missed a great story. We don't even know his name today. When Peter saw that, he said to Jesus, Lord, we left all to follow you. We left the best catch we ever had. And he said, Peter, 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 Peter. I want to share with you. Even a cup of cold water given the name of Christ has a reward to it. You're not going to miss a thing. The reward is going to be so ample, you'll never look back. He who comes to God must believe that he not only is God, but he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Disbelief. When the writer of Hebrews says, throw off the things that hinder us, throw off disbelief. It's one of the number one causes for cataract, spiritual cataracts. Number two, it's disobedience. That's where we're holding on to things. That's where we're, Lord, we don't want to let go. <laughs> I don't want to let you into my closet. <laughs> I don't want to let you into the secrets of my life. There's just no way that I, I'm going to take that step. 
And that's where things stop. Where we stop and we, when we refuse to surrender, we're going to read when we get to chapter 4 that that grieves the Holy Spirit. That breaks his heart. And when that breaks his heart, he says, okay, we're done. <laughs> we're done until we get this thing resolved. How many times do I need to bring you back to that point of forgiveness? How many times do I need to bring you back? Let's go make it right. And now we can take the next step forward. And disobedience, I think, is one of the reasons why we have spiritual cataracts. And then number three, Jesus talked about this when he talked about the sowing of the seed, how it falls in different soil. We become distracted. (laughs) We're caught up with so many other things. There's so many other things that vie for our attention, our interest, our affections. And some of them are good. And I talked about idolatry. We can love our family more than Jesus. We can love our jobs more than Jesus. We can love pleasure more than Jesus. And we become distracted. And Jesus says there's seed that falls on the soil. Some of it doesn't go anywhere. The birds come and pick it up. Some of it falls, it sprouts up and withers away. They get all, all excited about Jesus. And then a little heat comes on and they're gone. But then there's a seed that falls on soil. And when it grows up, man, the Bermuda grass and the thistles grow up right up with it and choke it out. And then there's seed that falls in good soil and there's a harvest of a hundredfold that's just beautiful. That's where you want to be. And the only way you get there is when the weeds are pulled. And sometimes we need to do real inventory in our life and say, Lord, what's, what's holding me back? What's keeping me from being all that you would desire for me to be? And so then I ask myself, just imagine, suppose... Paul's prayer was answered. Suppose that we were given a spirit of revelation and wisdom so that we would know him incredibly, know him better. And suppose that we really got a handle on the hope of our calling and the riches of his grace and his power. What would that look like? What would that look like in each of our lives? And what would that look like as a church? Folks, we would, be, we would love like nobody's business. Remember what Paul says? When I heard about your faith and their love for all the saints, and that impressed me. We would have unconditional love for one another. And that starts when we recognize how we have been loved unconditionally. Jesus has loved us right where we are at. If you're far away today, he loves you. If you're stalled out, he loves you. His love for you hasn't changed. Just imagine if we all understood this, how we would love one another and how we would love those around us because we would be free to love when we are loved that way. It would affect our speech. Our speech would be different. There wouldn't be any more coarse jesting that's talked about in Ephesians chapter 5. In fact, the things that would proceed out of our mouth would be, he said, let no unwholesome word ever come out of your mouth. That would go away. You cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit and have trash come out of your mouth. Those two cannot coexist. He says, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only such word that is good for the moment, that it gives grace to those here, it would affect our speech. It also affects our relationships. Makes a difference the kind of husband I am. Makes a difference the kind of wife my wife is. Makes a difference the kind of dad I am to my kids. I don't exasperate them. Ephesians chapter six, verse one. I raise them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord because I'm filled with the Spirit. I want God to reign and to rule in my home. 
It affects my relationships at work. It affects my relationships in the sales context that I make, in the business dealings I deal with, because I want to make sure they see Jesus, that I, that I don't interfere with their ability to come to know him. And then it affects my character. People can't, well, begin to immediately see the difference. Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter four, said if, you, if you're known as a thief, stop stealing and now take your hands and start doing good things out of them and watch what happens. Watch what happens when you're known as a man of integrity and honesty. Watch what happens when he controls you and you imitate him, Jesus Christ, like little children. You walk in love. And watch what happens when there's no hint of immorality about your life. Watch what happens. And all of a sudden, his character begins to, your character begins to be transformed in the likeness of Christ. Because you have known him, epikonosko, it is leaking out of you and me and together. Big Valley is known for many things in this community. We have a beautiful property. We have beautiful gardens. We have beautiful building. We have a good number of people that watch us online also here. But wouldn't it be something if when people think of Big Valley Grace, oh, how they love one another. Oh, look at their relationships. Oh, look at their character. Look... Man, Jesus just leaking out of them. Wouldn't that be something? That Big Valley would be known. Not for the things down here that don't matter. It's known for the things that do. And so here's our prayer. It's my prayer for myself. It's, my, it's our staff's prayer for each of us as we pray through the cards. We pray. We pray. We pray that the Lord would give to each of us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. Not that you'd be able to tell more stories about Jesus better, that you really, really know him better. He has grabbed a hold of your life and he is setting you free. And we're praying that you don't have cataracts, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that when you open up the word of God, it speaks truth to you. And it's a living active force in your, wor- in your life and in your world. And you're understanding your calling, you're understanding the riches we have in Christ, and you're experiencing his mighty power that is setting you free from all sorts of things as he delivers you out of darkness into light. That's our prayer. Let's stand with me. I'm going to pray. We have a last song we're going to sing, and then Lisa's going to dismiss you. But folks, let's, let's do this. Let's pray this together today. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord. I'm grateful, Lord, that today that you're above all things. I'm grateful that you're not a promoted angel. I'm grateful that you're the God who always has been, always will be, that all things have flown out of your hands and all authority under heaven and earth is underneath you. And the title you wear is above any other title, that there's no other title that anyone could ever bear but the one that you have. And that not only are you seated in the heavens of the right hand of the Father, but you here. You said where two or three are gathered. There am I in the midst of the three Holy Spirit. You're here today. And Lord, you are pleased when we dwell together in unity. You are pleased when we love one another unconditionally. You are pleased, Lord, when your power works within us and people are being set free by the power of your mighty grace. So Lord, would you develop in us, not only individually, but collectively, that we would be known as a people who are called by your name, who love you and love one another. 
So Father, we commit ourselves to you. That may your word be powerful in our life for, its, for your glory. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.